Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. This is Snails and Oysters. Welcome to Snails and Oysters, the bi-weekly, bi-coastal, bi-sexual movie podcast. I'm Nat Roberts. And I'm Allie Rogers. Should old acquaintance <laughs> be forgot? Well, that's not gonna, really appropriate. I was going to go for a happy birthday. Just good old Oh, yeah. Birthday. Actually, do you want to take it back? <laughs> I'm not singing happy birthday on the, on the All podcast. right. Fair enough. It's been a year. It's our year anniversary of releasing... Uh, this wonderful, weird dog and pony show to you, our very beautiful listeners. Our beautiful, um, perfect listeners. Exactly. Our gorgeous, uh, intelligent, brave, unique, sensuous listeners. <laughs> it's it's really strange to think about it in those terms, to be honest. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> partly because we started working on this show. What was it? Like, when, when did we start actually working on this? Like, March of 2020? March or, 2020. Yeah. It took us it took us the better part of a year to get everything together to start releasing episodes. And so it feels like it's simultaneously been a lot longer than a year and a, a lot, lot less shorter. than a year. Yeah. Do you have a favorite episode that we've done so far? Hmm. <laughs> it's hard. I, I feel like my asking you to choose a favorite child. Well, I feel like my favorite episode might have been it's not my favorite, but there was something really hilarious about just the entire experience of Barbarella. <laughs> True. Oh, my God. Yeah, both the film itself, our experience recording it, and then the editing process on that one was so just terrible on you. So I really loved, and this is partially just because I have a terrible memory, but um, our episode with Michelle, uh, the Brookback oh, Mountain. Oh, Mountain, yes. Yeah. That one was so fun. Uh, that's it. All, uh, obviously, all of our guests were fantastic, and everyone should go listen to their episodes right away because they're all much smarter than we are. E2 um, Mama uh, Tambien yes. fully, like, uh, I think about it all the time, just as, like... Yes, that and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I would say, are the two movies I think about constantly. Yeah, and Jennifer's Body I watched in a, a cabin in Maine with my boyfriend, and that was just, like, a really fun, <laughs> spooky experience. Oh my god, yeah that that one was because I I had never seen that one and I remember it like blew my mind how good it was. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. It's it's been it's been so much fun doing this with you, Allie. To be honest, like I it's I wouldn't have wanted to do it with anybody else. Same. No, it's been super fun and it's been really fun like having the guests that we've had on. Yeah. And I don't know, just like every episode, I love that we do such like a range of films. Like, yeah. Some like it hot. Oh, you that know, was like a, a good one. 1959. That one was you so You know, much Marilyn fun. Monroe. And then we also do like Thor Ragnarok. So. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's, it's also like fun when we do something like a Deadly Illusions where the movie is just so bad and we get to tear into it mm-hmm. with like no restraint. Yeah. Do you have any hopes for the future of the show? I just want to keep doing it, honestly. Um, like it's it's been exciting. We've been getting a little more attention lately. But really, it's just it. I, I, I really believe that like if I didn't love just the actual making of this show, 
then I don't think I would have made it a year, you know, but it, it's just so much fun to to know that I'm going to talk to you every other week yeah. about a movie that is either good or bad, but is definitely queer. It's just it's just so much fun. Well, and it's just fun, really fun to like talk about a movie. I feel like yeah. sometimes I feel like viewing experiences can be like a little lonely or like a little in your head with all your thoughts. Absolutely. Especially when the discourse is happening on apps like Letterboxd or Twitter, where it's like you post something and then maybe a day later somebody replies to it. You, you, you don't get to be as like active and bubbly as you do in a like one-on-one conversation. Yeah, and it can feel kind of adversarial. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I'm I'm so glad Elon Musk is taking over Twitter because then oh, he's absolutely. really going to solve he's, that problem. <laughs> yeah, you know, he has a real ideological commitment to free speech other than the kid who keeps tracking his flight records. Yeah, I hope I'm, I just hope that we get like, I, I feel like I have friends who listen who will send me ideas of movies we should watch and definitely for all of our beautiful, perfect, intelligent listeners. Virile, like, strong, charismatic listeners. Virile strong. Yeah, yeah. You know, I definitely love um, the idea of like people sending movies in and yeah. stuff like that. That would be fun, you know, but also if, you've, if all of our listeners are too shy and introverted, I respect you. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I see you. And I won't look we at you. We see you. We hear you. We love you. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of things we love, today's episode I think is going to be one. Of, I think I'm going to add that to my list of favorite episodes because not only is this just this movie is already one of my favorites, even though I, I it just came out this year, but also our conversation was just so much fun. We went on such wild tangents, uh, which only feels appropriate given the movie that we're talking about, which is everything everywhere all at once. Yeah, what I loved about this was the fact that you very last minute were like, I think we need to do this for the show and you have to go see it. So it became like a mission in my life was like, (laughs) you know, which like it feels exciting to go see a movie with a deadline and a mission. (laughs) I know what you mean. Yeah. And it, it also feels exciting to do something that's still in that's just hitting wide release is is really exciting. Super fun. You know, the, yeah, like people have their theories, but it's not like a super um, established conversation around it yet. There's still so much to explore. And that's exactly what we're going to do. let's explore it. Let's yeah. hit it. <laughs> yeah. Everything Everywhere All at Once is a 2022 sci-fi martial arts action comedy adventure romance family drama written and directed by Daniels, a.k.a. Daniel Shiner and Daniel Kwan, and starring the legendary Michelle Yeoh as Evelyn Wong with Ki Kwan, Stephanie Hsu, James Hong, and Jamie Lee Curtis in supporting roles. Okay, really quick. You probably know this better than me, but is it Daniels or The Daniels? So I, I saw an interview where Jamie Lee Curtis asked them herself, and they said, we're Daniels, but we don't care if someone calls us The Daniels. We just feel like it's pretentious. Oh, okay, okay. Good, good, good. I, I, I knew you would know, but I had to ask. Um, of course okay. I know. I've been obsessed with this movie. <laughs> when we first meet Evelyn, her attention is being pulled in a million directions at once. Her struggling laundromat is being audited by the IRS. Her elderly father, who everyone calls Gong Gong, has just arrived from China. Her daughter, Joy, wants to bring her girlfriend to the Lunar New Year party Evelyn is planning. And her nevish husband, Waymond, has just suggested they get a divorce. Super simple so far, obviously. But during a meeting at the local IRS office, Evelyn is thrown the ultimate curveball. Waymond's body is taken over 
like Wakakuni by Alpha Waymond, a version of him from a parallel universe. Alpha Waymond explains that in his world, Evelyn developed a technology that allows people to verse jump or access versions of themselves from alternate universes where they made different life choices. In the Alphaverse, this invention inadvertently created Jobu Tupaki. Juju Chewbacca. <laughs> a verse jumping prodigy who overused the technology and now experiences all realities at once. Driven mad by this revelation, Jobu Tupaki has become a cosmic horror, seemingly bent on destroying the entire multiverse. Alpha Waymond has been searching for a version of Evelyn who he believes can defeat Jobu Tupaki, and he thinks that our Evelyn is the one. Evelyn's universe is soon invaded by Jobu's nihilistic acolytes, and she's forced to learn how to verse jump on the fly to save her reality. By accessing the memories of her alternate selves, Evelyn gains both the skills she needs to fight and some uncomfortable insights into her own life, as all of her alternate selves seem much happier and more successful. Yeah, like 100% across the board. (laughs) As if this day could not get worse, Evelyn... Uh, comes face to face with Jobu Tupaki and discovers that this universe annihilating monster is an alternate version of her own daughter, Joy. Uh, since she can't kill her own daughter, Evelyn provokes the anger of the Alphaverse, which is led by an alternate version of her dad. Evelyn overuses verse jumping intentionally to become like Jobu Tupaki, seeing this as the only way to save her daughter. In doing so, she discovers that Jobu's plan is not to destroy reality, but to destroy herself and escape the overwhelming weight of all existence using an everything bagel. <laughs> A literal everything bagel. <laughs> Experiencing all realities at once, Evelyn is briefly converted to Jobu's nihilistic philosophy and begins wreaking havoc in her various lives, divorcing Wayman in one universe, seducing him in another, betraying trust, ruining lives before planning to join Jobu in the everything bagel. But what stops Evelyn is Wayman. Across the multiverse, even though he doesn't fully understand what's happening, Waymond calls out for Evelyn and by extension everyone to be kinder and stop fighting. And I think the second time I saw it, that's where I started crying. (laughs) Inspired by Waymond, Evelyn uses her verse-jumping cosmic omnipresence to stop both the Alpha Jumpers and Jobu's minions. Only instead of kicking their asses, she's looking into their minds and giving them the one thing that they need to be happy. Confronting Jobu at the edge of the bagel and Joy outside the laundromat, Evelyn reconciles with all versions of her daughter and convinces her to abandon the everything bagel, happily declaring that we can do what we want. Nothing matters. In the film's epilogue, we see Evelyn's original universe has achieved a new harmony. Evelyn and Waymond have rekindled their relationship and refiled their taxes. Joy and her girlfriend, Becky, have been integrated back into the family. And Evelyn is able to relax and accept her ability to see everything, everywhere, all at once. After its post-production was delayed by the pandemic, Everything Everywhere All at Once premiered at 2022's South by Southwest Festival. Since its debut, the movie has had an ever-expanding limited release and has garnered nearly universal acclaim from critics and audiences. Coming soon to a theater near you. (laughs) Seriously, though, this movie is fantastic. It's still in theaters. Go see it! Yeah, yeah. I think if you feel like the synopsis has been hard to follow, just go see it. (laughs) Yeah, the Daniels do a much better job explaining than we ever could.
I love this movie so much. Yeah, this is a great film. Wonderful film. Oh, my God. Uh, so obviously we typically start our conversations talking about like our history with the movie or our experience seeing it or how we heard about it this one's interesting because this is our first time recording an episode for a movie that is still in theaters yeah i think it's only been in theaters for a week or two too it's very early like (laughs) well you know when you live in los angeles you get to see the the early release before it you know hits theaters out in the the boonies like new york right right the boonies Uh, But I think this episode will actually come out a week before Everything Everywhere All at Once debuts in the UK. So it's still it's still hitting places for the first time. So that's that's it's really exciting, actually, to like be talking about something that feels so current. Yeah, totally. You just saw the movie yesterday, right? Yeah. mm -hmm. I mean, I just thought it was like a feat. I thought it was like a feat on a script level, on a world building level. Um, on a filmmaking level, I feel like I would watch yeah. a full documentary about just the techniques they use to pull off <laughs> this film. I really just was stunned um, on a on a character level, like all of yeah. the characters. There was so much generosity to show the characters and all their you know flaws. <laughs> and yeah, I really went in not knowing anything except that it was getting a lot of praise and I know you were like I think we should do this for the show and you were like you gotta go see it yeah I I think I didn't I didn't even want to tell you the bisexual element because I wanted I wanted you to go in blind yeah and I I just thought it was a really a really profound film a film that manages to a, a film that is basically funny every opportunity it gets to be funny while also just being deeply meaningful and philosophical I mean and also a film that is just shot in a way with like so many visual gags, but also so much quick motion, quick editing that like, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to see a film that's like on the one hand, really, if it, it honestly felt similar to me to the movie, uh, I think it was called Ghosts or Ghosts. For, it was an A24 film. Oh, a ghost story. A ghost that story. One? Yeah, a ghost story. Like, I actually feel like they have similar meditations on life, but this felt like just visually so packed. Yeah. I actually had to leave the theater at one point. There's, I, I had a weird, um, I got a little faint at one point. I think really? I was just like overwhelmed by, this is the first time I've been in a movie theater since early 2020. Mm. And I had to step out and I knew I was like, I'm going to step out for two minutes and miss so much because it was just so packed <laughs> full of information. I mean, it was just incredible. Everyone in the theater clapped when it was over, you know, we're just full, yeah. full applause. <laughs> yeah. that's. I've always thought it was so hokey when people do that. But for this movie, I clapped at the end of it. And the only thing I really knew about it was that it was about the multiverse. And I was really curious to see that because I, I've watched so much like there, like multiverse has just been like an exploding concept, I think, in TV and in totally. film, because it's like a great concept for writers and storytellers, but it's also a really great concept for corporations. Yeah. It's a way that a character never has to die. A franchise never dies. You know, for Disney to have... Oh, yeah. To be able to use the multiverse as a narrative device, it's like endlessly reincarnating 
these characters that make money. So I was really curious to see a fresh take on the multiverse. And I feel like it really was a fresh take. It's so interesting that you bring up Disney because Daniels, the directors of the film, Daniel Shiner and Daniel Kwan, actually turned down the opportunity to direct Loki, the Disney Plus series, because they were already planning to do this movie. And they said, you know what? We could take an infinite budget and do their version of the multiverse, but we'd rather do ours. And so, you know, and I, I think it paid off because this this movie is I I would rank it up there with like Mad Max Fury Road as like one of those movies you see. It's just, you know, it's going to be one of the best movies of the 21st century, regardless of what comes after. Like, I, I, I hate saying that because it feels like it sets an impossible standard for anyone who hasn't already seen the movie. But with everything everywhere all at once, I am not scared of overhyping it. But I think also what I love about it is it's so stylized. It's such like in the style of the Daniels, like which I don't know much of their work beyond music videos, but you really can see their visual style from the music videos, which I didn't think that was going to translate or I didn't think you would see it. And you do. You totally do. So it's funny because I I think I agree with you. It's, It's an amazing film. But I also think. You can't you kind of can't even compare it or rank it because it's just on its own playing field with them. You know, you're absolutely right. And I honestly think like music videos might be like the 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 real training ground for directors these days, because I think one of the one of the other best movies of the past few years is Sorry to Bother You, directed by Boots Riley. And his first few directing credits were directing music videos for his group, The Coup. Mm. And, And given like the the sort of ascent of realism uh, in American filmmaking, music videos have been one of the few like last bastions of formalism and expressionism and impressionism, like all of these weird, like unrealistic, but more interesting hmm. uh, aesthetics. So it, it makes complete sense to me that the, the that Daniels came up through the music video pipeline rather than, you know, more maybe more traditional filmmaking like short films and festivals and things like that totally totally well it's just like crazy too because it's not like they were doing like niche music videos it was like for like dj snake you know yeah (laughs) i mean they were doing these big budget like it's funny to just describe it as coming up through the music video world because it's like you're not wrong but also it's like they weren't just like it wasn't like no name bands i mean these are huge videos with huge budgets and like totally yeah i mean ugh. Such a movie, such a movie. <laughs> so much movie. It is 10 pounds a movie in a five pound bag. It is. It is. You you mentioned the production. And I'd love to to talk about that a little before we get into like some of the themes, some of the characters, and of course the queerness of it all. Because it, it this movie, this movie sits in a really interesting place because it's a it's an independent film. It's A24 again. Oh, I didn't realize yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. But and it, but it's it's an independent blockbuster. You know, mm-hmm. it is designed to be that sort of classic, you know, over the top spectacle film that's meant to drive people to the theater to go see it. But it was still produced on a 25 million dollar budget, which is a drop in the bucket these days. Mm-hmm. So, it's it I I my brain immediately wanted to know how they did it. And I, I started digging into the actual production. And it's incredible, frankly, the the way that the Daniels pulled this off. Oh, tell me more. For example, like their VFX supervisor, Zach Stoltz said, ultimately five people ended up doing over 80% of the visual effects shots in this film. That's crazy. They heavily relied on After Effects. They mostly avoided like 3D animation software like Maya and used really simple old fashioned tricks to get the look they wanted. Mm. And that floored me that, that most of this movie was done 
in After Effects in like a commercially available VFX software because yeah. it looks amazing. It really does. <laughs> it really does. That was sort of the first thread I started pulling on. And it's like, you know, their their stunt coordinator talked about working with uh Brian and Andy Lay, who were who are two of the featured martial artists in the film. They play, you know, the trophy fight with the the guys with the trophies up their butts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the Lay Brothers, and they ran a YouTube channel called uh, I think it's called Martial Arts Club or, or the Martial Club, and they helped choreograph several of the fight scenes. Uh, I think most of the fight scenes actually. And the the Daniels found them on YouTube and were just like, "Hey, want to come be in this movie?" Wow! And so you know, there's this really like garage band feel to the movie, um, and and ultimately, I found the the perfect summation was actually Daniel Kwan, one of the Daniels said. Uh, this film and all of us who worked on it are the product of our time. We learned VFX from Video Copilot, mm. which is how I learned After Effects. We learned shot design from every frame of painting, mm. <laughs> which is yeah. probably part of the reason I do, do a podcast now. Yeah. Uh, the Marshall Club, our YouTubers with no formal training, uh, and learned everything from watching Hong Kong movies, referring to like you know martial arts films right. from like the heyday of like 90s Hong Kong action films. Right. Um, well, like 60s through 90s. He went on to say, like, it's also worth mentioning that while we use disruptive technology and punk humanist ethos while making this film, we also owe a lot to the veterans who worked with us and had a wealth of traditional experience to help balance it all out. It's always a balance. And mm. I, th I think that that summation really captures something special about this movie, which is that it, it's clear from all the interviews I've watched, from all the breakdowns I've seen, that the Daniels worked really closely with every member of their crew from the beginning. Like you can't pull off VFX like this in After Effects yeah. unless you are planning it from the start. Yeah, I mean, like it's it just felt so clear to me that they had such like masterful control over yeah. the production. I, I, I've never worked on a set bigger than like 20 or 25 people. You know, I've never worked on like, <laughs> I've never worked on a narrative feature, but it's like even the smallest visual effects take such painstaking attention to detail. Absolutely. Um, and such painstaking coordination between director, DP, post-production. And that's why I was just like blown away. I mean, I feel like I want to watch the film again yeah soon honestly i would take a friend to go see it just because i feel like i was so blown away by the technical prowess you know i'm just totally yeah. beast of a film because I, this is just a film where you're like you can feel the decades of experience that each person working on this film had to make it happen you know what i mean absolutely i don't know maybe i'm like running it maybe i sound like too I don't know, but it, it was me. I, I think for this episode, let's just let's just be honest with each other and not worry if we sound pretentious because like I'm yeah. I'm going deep on this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well what's hard is like I'm like I don't even think I know enough to talk the way I'm talking. Like I feel like I know so little of about film production, but even with how little I know, I'm just like blown away by this, you know. I mean same honestly. I, I've been working in this business for all of four years really and it's still mind-boggling to me that they were able to conceive of write execute and finish this movie and when i say they i don't just mean daniels i mean the entire team because this was still just such a small community of people working together on such a difficult project to explain to people 
And so the idea that it, it works at all is a miracle. And the fact that it works so well is inexplicable. <laughs> it's incredible. And I think one of the reasons why it's so exciting is we're so used to seeing these kinds of effects in just like, I mean, I'm used to seeing them pretty much only in Marvel movies. My family loves yeah. superhero movies. And so they always want to go see like the latest Marvel film. And so I'm not someone who like hates Marvel, but I also am someone who's like, I can see that this is an unhealthy ecosystem that we have in film sure. where all of this money is getting funneled towards these endless Marvel franchises while like the ecosystem itself is starved of mid-tier budget films. And I th just think it's thrilling to see a film that isn't a Marvel movie have this level of special effects, you know? Absolutely. And, and I think part of the reason it's so wonderful is because Marvel films and Star Wars films and all of these established franchises have an established language for VFX. Yeah. You know, they use it at particular times in a particular way. It looks a certain way every time to the extent that the directors of a Marvel film typically have no involvement in the VFX process. Wow. Most of the Is VFX. That true? Really? Yeah. Wow. Most, for example, most of the VFX on Black Widow were done before photography began. That's crazy. And so the director came in and was told, don't worry about it. That's and crazy. And so it ends up all looking the same. Wow. And it, it's such a shame because VFX is one of the most promising arts that contribute to filmmaking today and its creativity and innovation are being stifled because, you know, I think I think one of the Daniels said in an interview, we didn't want this to be a movie where everyone's covered in blue energy fields. Right. And something about that was so funny because so many movies, it's just instead <laughs> yeah. of something tactile and human. And I think this this movie's VFX are so tactile. They feel so human scale and just the uh the the world mechanics of this film feels so tactile i mean just the fact that in order to jump from uh universe to universe or to like use the qualities of another self in another universe you have to do this something weird you know yeah and it's inc yes. inc incredibly physical it really like we're so immersed in sci-fi that is very, I think, detached from the body where you're watching and you're like, well, totally. I don't really know what it would be like to be, you know, sucked through this weird portal or whatever. But this one's you're like, well, yeah. I, I potentially know what it would feel like. The visceral, it's so visceral, the visceral reaction yeah. to. I had a paper cut. I know how it would feel to have one between well, the each paper of my cut, fingers. The paper cut was when I started to feel faint. And I literally think that it was just <sighs> so well done that it just triggered something in me that was like, oh. But yeah, and the oh. chapstick, you know, you can imagine yes. eating chapstick like they really made an incredible unification of like bodily sensations and weird sci-fi and that was so yeah. cool you know and it and i think that touches on one of my favorite elements of this script which is how it teaches us the rules of the world you know it's it does it very organically obviously it's 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 sort of standard protocol to have like your main character be a fish out of water and have to learn things but they also do a great job of educating us on the visual language of the film. Like the first verse jump when Evelyn goes into the closet with Alpha Waymond, you know, she's just dragged across the room to mm -hmm. the closet. And yeah. they actually shot it that way. They just had her on a dolly and rolled her to the closet. Nice. So then when she first jumps further afield, you'd still get that sensation of being pulled. Like it's not just that some random shit has happened. You you get that she is being pulled through the world, like across the globe. Right. Uh, and it, it's a very physical sensation. And and this movie 
is so good at exposition. It establishes how everything works so organically in ways that are totally reasonable given the circumstances. And it never changes its rules. It just builds on them. Mm -hmm. You know, it just adds and remixes them the way like a good video game does, Mm. you know, where it's you you don't want to introduce a new concept at the end of the movie. You just want to reapply the first one. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. It's just amazing. It it really is. And speaking of the writing, I I found it a really interesting tidbit that I'm curious to hear. Tell me, tell me about the tidbits. I love how much knowledge you have (laughs) with this film. It's it's only it's so funny when you said like oh I want to take somebody to go see it I did I saw it in theaters and then dragged my partner T to go see it the following weekend yeah I love so I've that. seen it twice I'm obsessed with this movie but yeah so I um I I had heard this and then followed it up originally the Daniels conceived of this as a Jackie Chan movie mm. so you you can see immediately how it would work it was originally Waymond was going to be the main character sure. played by Jackie Chan sure. And what's interesting is I I heard a rumor that it's just that Jackie Chan was too expensive. It's possible. But what I saw in an interview, I believe it was Quan again, uh, said, you know, we we were working on this script with Jackie Chan in mind and we couldn't get it to work. It Mm. just didn't work. It just something fell off all the time. And then we one of us suggested switching it and they switched it so that Evelyn was the protagonist instead and suddenly everything clicked into place that's really interesting he said like it opened the script up and i think that that's plain to see like i think in the dynamics of these characters they work so well and they feel so real like waymond and evelyn remind me of my friend's parents so much (laughs) and my own parents in many ways and i also think like it, it, it the influence of Jackie Chan movies is obvious. You know, I think yes, the, yeah. in the fight scenes and the physical comedy and just the spirit of the movie. But I, I also think like it, it couldn't have worked if it was a Jackie Chan movie because then you're like, oh, look, it's Jackie Chan. <laughs> I think hearing that it was going to be just like a Jackie Chan movie, obviously they would have they could have pulled that off. I personally think. Sure. But there is something really special about the role they gave him of this kind of cheerful you know, hopelessly optimistic, uh, pretty like gentle natured husband who's only serving divorce papers because he thinks that's the only way to like get his wife to take their problem seriously. Yeah. And to notice him, basically, he's not even really interested in a divorce. Like, I don't know. It was just a really sweet version of masculinity to kind of have this absolutely triumphant ending you know, um, and that he is he is critical to the resolution of the plot. Like yes. he, he may not be like the hero anymore, but he he does sort of present. He's the character who presents the uh, the controlling idea of the movie, which is like you're just fighting because you're scared. We need to be kind. Yeah, which I would love to delve into that so much more deeply in a minute. Um, yeah, but yeah. For for now, I think I think that's a great transition to talk about the characters and the performances because. Dear God, the performances in this movie are insanely good. Like, mm-hmm. uh, let's let's start with Ki Kwan as Waymond. Yeah, I mean, so good. <laughs> did you did you recognize him? Like, did you? I did, but I couldn't remember from what. Do do you know now, or do you want me to say? No, say I, I don't know. <laughs> he was short round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Okay, well, and, I wouldn't have remembered that ever. Well. <laughs> And he was Data in The Goonies. He he played both of those, oh, those roles. Oh, wow. So he's like a child star. Yeah. And, wow. and it's really fascinating because he, he kept acting into his early 20s and then quit 
for 20 years. Wow. He focused on martial arts, which I think is pretty obvious given his performance in this movie. Um, But he was just so disheartened by the lack of roles for Asian actors Mm. in Hollywood. He did a lot of work overseas, but he just didn't. He, he, his heart wasn't in it because, you know, he, he came to America as a kid. He's always lived here. Wow. And it was actually the movie Crazy Rich Asians that got him to reconsider that, at which stars Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> Wait, was he in that movie or was he just no, inspired? No, but he saw it and he saw the success it had and literally just called up a friend of his who was an agent and was like, hey, I think I want to start acting again. And this was the first movie he did coming back to acting. No way. That's incredible. I swear to God. That's an amazing Another movie story. got released sooner, but th- this one was the first one he shot. That's amazing. I know. He's so good. He is so uh, good. Especially because he's playing three different people, really. <laughs> yeah, he's playing three different people, and he really just just has like a subtle power throughout the whole movie. Yeah. And <laughs> just delightful to watch. I just found him just so delightful. Like when he's putting googly eyes on a balloon or yes. kind of arguing with the IRS agent. Or not arguing, but like, you know, asking her for more time. And yeah. And just the way that he's trying to get uh, his wife's attention. I mean, it was all, I just, I don't know. I loved his performance. It was yeah. amazing. I it, it was so nuanced. And I, I, Michelle Yeoh in an interview said that he he worked very, he took the role very seriously and worked with a body language coach, really? uh, among others, to establish like a different physical presence for each version of him where it's, uh, you know, there's, there's Waymon Wong, the like main version, uh, who is a squirrel. And then there's Alpha Wayman, the like sci-fi version, who is an eagle. Mm. And then there's in the in the universe where Evelyn is a movie star, the sort of Wong Kar Wai inspired universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his like successful romantic Wayman is a fox. And mm. I I think it it shows just in the physical way that those characters present because. Th- What's interesting is that VFX isn't always used to signal a verse jump. A lot of times it just depends on performance, particularly going back and forth between Wayman and Alpha Wayman. So much of it depends on how wide Key's eyes are. Mm. Like, is he like is he scared or is he serious? And mm-hmm. then you know which one he is. And to, to be able to pull that off so many times with so little – like I think about like the the scene – you may have missed it because it's right after the paper cuts. But it's like they're looking at each other over a filing cabinet. And he starts the scene as Alpha Waymond, and you can only see his eyes, and then he ducks down, and then he comes back up as Waymond Wong, and you know immediately <laughs> that he is switched. Wow. <laughs> it's it's just incredible. Wow. Yeah, no. Let's let's do you want to talk about Evelyn, Michelle Yeoh? Let's talk about Evelyn, yeah. An amazing character. I mean, just this is such an intense role to play. Yeah. You know, with the amount of information that her that Evelyn has to absorb and then completely reorient her life around and like try to defeat yeah. Jobu Tupaki. I mean, it's just like what You mean Juju Chewbacca? <laughs> yeah, Juju Chewbacca. <laughs> I mean, just a really really impressive performance. I'm just stunning like Yeah. Stunning. And and that on top of martial arts training. Like she has several really impressive fight scenes throughout this movie. That takes a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. And I think a really, a character that the audience could really empathize with. I mean, you could just tell this is someone who, you know, she's overworked, her daughter, her husband looking out for her attention and just she's not able to see it and she's not able to like give it in a way that is good for their relationships. And yeah. I feel like all of that is external, but what's so interesting about like the journey that she goes on is it kind of 
attacks her internally. You know, there's this terrible moment yeah. when like Alpha Waymond, I think it's Alpha <laughs> Waymond, he basically yeah. says like, well, just she's the biggest loser of all the Evelyns in all the multiverse. Yep. And so she can like draw on all of these other awesome Evelyns yeah. in different multiverses. Right. And like what's so interesting is that like the film starts out by just showing the way that she's maybe failing externally the people around her. Yeah. But then we go deep into like maybe the ways that she might feel like she's failed herself or not like lived up into a version of herself that she's excited about. And like yeah. it's just also so, so funny. The idea of the multiverse brings up so many stressful conundrums but one of them being that you could be the biggest loser of all of you i know or like uh there's another great alpha wayman line where he says she she asks him like how did i die in you your universe and wayman says i've seen you die a thousand times in a thousand different ways in a thousand different universes and in every single one you were murdered yeah <laughs> that's so bleak so bleak <laughs> It's so fascinating that this is a movie written by two young guys. Like these are these are guys in their like 30s, I think, the Daniels, and yet they they're able to capture a middle-aged female character in a way that feels really genuine and really real, where I often think of like it, it's like they took a character who has appeared in the background of so many other movies and made her an action hero. You know, she's a she's a middle-aged Chinese American woman who works in a laundromat. In lesser hands, that could even be a racial stereotype. But instead, Quan and Shiner turn her into this like cosmic hero in such a believable way. It's fantastic. Yeah. No, it's great. It's it's great. And I think just the way they write all their characters is just with a lot of empathy, but also in particular the yeah. fact that really the two main characters are women, Evelyn and her daughter, Joy, and both of them just feel written in this really beautiful way that is so, it's impressive. It's really impressive. Yeah. (laughs) And that, and that they're, they're so willing to give them flaws too, you know, to give them unlikable moments. Like, um, you know, Evelyn is not for all her protestations. She's not super accepting of Joy's sexuality at the top of the film. She's constantly saying like, oh, you know, you're, you know, Gong Gong wouldn't understand things like that. And like, you know, saying you're getting fat and all these things that like, you know, parents can say that are hurtful to their children. Yeah. But you never dislike her for it. You know, you, you never, you always understand why, um, because she's such a finely wrought character, you know? Yeah. And Joy too, I think as... Less as Joy and more as Jobu Topaki is a really frustrating character in a way. Yeah. I mean, both a really important character. I don't think, I mean, this was just like to have a character so openly dealing with like nihilism was really cool. But also, you know, she's so frustrating because you just feel like as the viewer, you see her like wreaking this destruction and kind of refusing meaning and refusing purpose. And it's a bit like, yeah. I mean, it feels like dealing with like a moody teenager, you know, but yeah. it's also so important. Only one with cosmic powers, with cosmic which is powers. terrifying. Yeah. yeah. I, I think all the time about that first scene when Stephanie Shu walks in as Jobu Tabaki for the first time with the pig and the like studded jacket. Mm-hmm. And it, it's such a great introduction because it gives us everything at once where it's. You know, she she has this swagger and this like insanity or or nihilistic disregard for human life, 
But also you get a hint of this sadness. Like when she approaches Evelyn, she doesn't immediately kill her. She she like sits her down and is like, here, let me show you something. And he, she shows her this everything bagel. And it clearly makes her so sad yeah. that you immediately know like, yes, this is the antagonist, but she isn't a monster exactly. Mm-hmm. And honest, again, talk about performances. Stephanie Shu. I, so I had never good. seen her anything before. I know she's on Maisel, but. Oh my God! What a dark horse! Like in a in a cast with Michelle Yeoh and fucking Jamie Lee Curtis, who we haven't even mentioned yet, and James Hong is Gong Gong, who's like a fucking legend. Yeah. Uh, but Stephanie Shu steals the scene every time. She is so watchable. Mm-hmm. No, I know, and she shows like such a range. I mean, to be able to like convincingly portray a essentially cosmic deity of. Yeah. nihilistic chaos yeah as well as portray a daughter who is just desperately looking for her mother's acceptance yeah i mean oh it's and just to play so good. both at the same time yeah. like by the end all of her lines are pulling double duty yeah you know both her and evelyn could be talking about their particular circumstances or they could be talking about the broader philosophical Cosmic. questions of yeah. the film yeah yeah I think we should talk about the queerness and the bisexuality. I agree. Because I, I think uh, the first time I saw this movie, obviously Joy is queer. Um, I think she she never says anything beyond queer, but I, I think uh, she identifies as a lesbian. Yeah. And the first time I saw it, that's the only thing I noticed. It was only the second time that I realized that Evelyn is also queer in this movie. Well, it's interesting because I think you can read it two different ways. Sure. I, I think so, too. And I'm I, so go ahead. Well, I think you can read it as Evelyn being queer and living like a queer uh, life in one of the, in the hot dog universe with. In the hot dog universe with Jamie Lee Curtis. With Jamie Lee Curtis as her wife. Um, not so subtly queer coded because there's like cat portraits all over their apartment. Um, <laughs> but I also. Well, and also they do the hot dog dance together. Yeah. So I think you can read it that way, but I also think you can read it that just like so much of this film is about the fact that if you accept the multiverse as the the way that reality is constructed, then there's a version of you living out all possibilities. So I think in that reading of the film, then like our original Evelyn, mm-hmm. it may not be queer, but of course there is a version of her somewhere out there. Mm-hmm. That is. I, I think both are true. And I'm, I'm going to make the argument that in both cases, she's still queer because by the end of the movie, Evelyn is every Evelyn. Mm-hmm. And so if there's an Evelyn that is queer uh, versus one that isn't, it's still her. Mm. And it's all part of her by the end, mm. which you can, you know, you can take on the sci-fi level or you can take on the, the, the metaphorical level where I think a lot of bisexuals, um, don't accept the queer part of themselves at first, you know, don't think of it as them. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of queer people in general have this experience. It has to be integrated, you know, because our society doesn't help you integrate it from the start. You have to reintegrate it into yourself at a later time. Mm. And I think that can kind of feel like you're pulling together three different personalities. Mm. I think it was um, Guy Burgess, the British spy, who was a, he was part of the Cambridge Six um, and was a, a gay man 
uh, closeted in the 1940s through the 19 whatever's before he escaped to the Soviet Union. And he he used to describe himself as three people at once. He had names for his different personalities hmm. um, and one was more acceptable. And that was the one he put up front. Um, I, it was, it was definitely one of the Cambridge six. I forget if it was Guy Burgess, but, uh, I, I think that's a very common queer experience to feel fractured the same way that these characters feel fractured mm. by their verse jumps. You know, it's literally represented as a pane of shattered glass. Yeah. Splitting the universe in two. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I hadn't thought about her kind of being queer by the end, having integrated all of the Evelyns into her one into her original Evelyn form. Um, yeah. And it, it's challenging for me to think of it in that way. Like, mm. but I think that the metaphor that you're making about like the lived experience of queer people and the idea of reintegrating your life as a queer person into the personality that you've kind of developed for a, a world that wants you to be straight uh, is really true. And I think what's so interesting is we're seeing a lot in the news now of like bills targeted towards um, the way that like kids are educated. Yeah. It's fucked up because I think we're, there's been this big movement to let kids self identify as like from an early age so that they don't have to necessarily go through as an intense, painful process of yeah. like letting their queer self and straight self exist and they can just be them, whoever they are from an early age. And we're seeing such an intense backlash towards that from the right. That's very much just like, no, we actually want, you know, the default yeah, is we always want repression. straight. We, yeah, we, we want yeah. repression <laughs> and we want psychological pain and we want the default to be straight so that, yeah, we want, we want you to have to suffer if you are other. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's so interesting is this is a film that takes the concept of multiple universes really seriously as like, what's the psychological effects? I mean, there's text towards the end that really is like, what is the psychological effect of potentially there being a multiverse? You know, it's just that we yeah. feel even smaller and shittier, you know, like we used to yeah, feel like, like smaller pieces of shit. Smaller yeah. pieces of shit. Yeah. Because I mean, they really lay it out well where they say, you know, we used to be the center of the world. Then we found out that we actually revolve around the sun. The sun doesn't revolve around us. And we found out there's this huge universe. Then we found out, oh my God, there might be more universes. And you know, what's next, right? What's next? What's the next thing that's going to make us small and shitty. But I think what's so great about what you're saying is that whether you take the metaverse kind of literally or not. You mean multiverse? Multiverse, Me Metaverse yeah. is the Facebook Sorry, thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, whether you take the multiverse literally or not in this film, like it's a really, really great metaphor for oh. feeling other in a lot of different ways. I think it's a great – the fracturing of personalities is a really good metaphor for like the immigrant experience. I think it's a great metaphor for – yeah for sexual orientation and for gender. I think there's a lot of different ways that people can feel fractured. Hell, just the internet. Yeah. Just the internet. It's a great metaphor for living in a time when everything is accessible. I think like the Bo Burnham song, a little bit of everything all of the time. Mm -hmm. And a great metaphor. And obviously this applies to like a set of people who are, you know, coming from uh, like a certain life of privilege, but it's a great metaphor for kind of the idea of freedom and making yeah. your own way in the world. You know, I think there was an article in the new, I think the New Yorker, or maybe the New York times a few years ago about someone feeling haunted by all their other selves that might've been, had they 
stayed in one city, pursued a different career, done X, Y, Z, you know, we're kind of like in the U.S. given this American dream of you can be whatever you want to be. But then I think we don't always fully like reckon with the fact that as you're pursuing who you want to be, you leave a lot of other selves behind. And that's like a really private thing that people have to reckon with. And this film, like the multiverse metaphor is such a good, I think, like way of dealing with that and like reckoning with that in like a literal narrative way. Yeah. And the, and the psychological, like you said, the psychological impacts, because whether or not you can actually, you know, control the course of your destiny in any country, I would Mm -hmm. argue, not really, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but at least not in the U S but the, the guilt is real. You know, if you believe that you can do anything and then you fail, then you believe it's your fault. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what Emily, uh, what Evelyn really has to face when she sees her life as a singer, as an as a actress, as a scientist. You know, it, it gives her this sense that she should have been more. She could have been more. I would say that's the the same feeling that like pushes joy over the edge into nihilism too, where it's like it uh, to pass that is like it doesn't even matter because in some universe I did. Yeah. Right. Right. And also the nihilism, I think, like. And dare dare we step into uh, criticism of the capitalist hellscape. But I also think there's yeah. there's so much to dig into where like she first gets in trouble with the IRS because she's reporting all of her hobbies as, you know, other businesses that she can write off the yeah. expenses. And her husband, Wayman, tries to say, no, 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 like karaoke, like she really has a good voice. And it's, yeah. a, it's a really interesting commentary on the way that our entire like tax system kind of forces us to treat whatever uh, way we make money as our primary identity and everything outside of that is relegated to a hobby, Yeah, you know? Well, and I, I would say that that's capitalism in general. Yeah. It's, we are asked to identify with our primary source of income. Right. And for Evelyn, her primary source of income, like as a first generation immigrant coming to this country is- to survive. Uh, a laundromat is survival, right? A survival yeah. business of this laundromat that's been extremely punishing to run, yeah. that actually doesn't seem like it's doing that well financially, that isn't like provided a lot of respect either. Yeah. You know, so she's not, she's looking at all these other things she could have been that in this lifetime are her hobbies that are actually actively getting her in trouble with the IRS. And in other lifetimes could have been avenues to, you know, why celebration the claim yeah. yeah you've you've used the term nihilism a few times um and i i want to get into that i think because i think it's it's crucial to understanding this film is understanding its relationship to nihilism and absurdism it's clear that um joy represents sort of nihilism you know this everything bagel um that's going to destroy her and destroy the world destroy everything the ultimate negation to, to really get into it it's also a metaphor for suicide mm-hmm. you know it's yeah. When you face the, you know, one one of the the crucial concepts I think to discussing this movie is the absurd. Yeah. Uh, the absurd, in a philosophical sense, is the disconnect between the human search for meaning in our lives and our inability to find it. Yeah. Um. This 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 is gonna get pretty pretty uh, frontal cortex, so bear with me. Um. But the French philosopher Albert Camus, in the myth of, myth of Sisyphus, proposed that there were three responses to the absurd. Uh, one was a leap of faith, which is sort of, you know, to just trust that there is meaning in life, mm. you know, whether it's through traditional religion or existentialism or whatever. The second is suicide, mm. which is sort of the ultimate ni- nihilism, mm. the ultimate negation, end your life. 
And then there's the third option, which she called recognition. And recognition, I think, is the thesis of this movie, because recognition means staring the absurdity of your life in the face and saying, okay, and going on with it, Mm. going on with your life, finding joy where you can, pursuing meaning without ever expecting to find it, accepting that when you die, you die, and who the fuck knows what happens next. Mm. And I think... That absurdism is the philosophy that Evelyn presents in the end, where she she literally tells Joy, we can do what we want. Nothing matters. Yeah. You know, taking that nothing matters as a liberation rather than as a death sentence. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I'm not as well versed, but I loved that explainer. <laughs> and I will say I'm part of the nihilism subreddit. Um, <laughs> so take that as you will. But I think what's interesting is there's actually always an active dialogue. Well, not always, but I've, I've seen it pop up in that subreddit of kind of delineate, delineating between different kinds of nihilists. Yeah. And they have in that subreddit talked about like there is, I don't know if they use the term absurd nihilist, but they have talked about actually nihilism being a doorway toward a, a kind of liberating doorway yeah. towards trying to enjoy your life in the moment, be present in the moment, kind of accept joyfully that you cannot grasp fully like the meaning of life within these other frameworks and kind of laugh um yeah and i agree i think that she really does come to represent that in the end and that's kind of her answer to joy or jobu tapaki who's kind of says i kind of thought that you would maybe be able to see something i couldn't see when i showed you the everything bagel yeah yeah you know i i God, I love that. I love that scene Um, because it's the two rocks on the cliff having that conversation. (laughs) It's just text, but it works so well. And the cinematography works so well. And the fact that the the symbol of this new philosophy that she picks is the googly eye, Mm -hmm. you know, this comedic, cute, chintzy thing that Wayman does that annoys her throughout the movie. But then, you know, obviously like one of the most iconic images of the film is Evelyn with the third eye, the googly eye in the center of her forehead. Um, which actually a friend of mine pointed out to me is the exact inverse of an everything bagel. You know, if it's a black ring versus a black circle inside of a white ring. Mm, yes. Oh, <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. But also like, I, I think, um, uh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Brain fart. No, um, we're, we're drilling. We're holding a lot of balls in the air. In our yeah, different yeah. multiverses. It's funny. I feel like this actually ties in really beautifully with our bonus episode on A Room with a View, of all things. Um, uh, Patreon.com slash Nails Oysters, if you're interested. Uh, <laughs> but Mr. Emerson has that line where he he says, like, please show my son that on the other side of the eternal why there is a yes. Mm. And I think that's a brilliant summation of what existentialism is, where it's, you know what, on the other side, there's a yes, and we just have to have faith in it. And I think it's it's a really easy way to understand these three interrelated philosophies. You know, if existentialism is a yes, the nihilism is a no, and absurdism is a wink and a shrug. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you can't tell, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've had a deep and abiding love for absurdism since I was in high school, frankly. And, and I love honestly, it. like the, the absurdist rejection of suicide is sort of like, it's still not a satisfactory answer. You know, it's still a no is still not a satisfactory answer to the question of the meaning of life. You know, that, that really helped me through some dark periods in my life where it's like, that's still not a solution. You know, it still doesn't solve the problem. It just avoids it. Yeah. Part of what I love about this film, and I don't know if you read it differently, but I don't actually get the sense that Joy is like suicidal 
in that. Main Joy, no. Main Joy, no. no. I, I, I don't read her that way. No, but I think what's interesting is Jobu Tupaki is, Jobu Tupaki just wants yeah. it to end. She cannot take experiencing these different universes. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but I don't think Joy is. But I, I actually really liked that difference because I think the message there, to me at least, was that like even if you are not, you know, suicidal – this, the feeling that your life has no meaning is still like yeah. not something that people should have to live with, you know? And that's what I find so beautiful about yeah. Joy and Evelyn in the end is that like uh, you don't get the sense that she's suicidal, but you do get the sense that she needed something more, you know, than, than yeah. what she had to like. It's kind of like Meghan Markle said in her interview at, <laughs> right, right before leaving the royal family. She said it's not just about surviving. It's about thriving. And yep. I think that wise words. Yeah. Wise words that I think about often. Shout out to Meghan Markle. <laughs> <laughs> but no, and I think I think that that. It's, it's really beautiful the way they build to that point because it feels so organic to all of the different timelines that we're dealing with. You know, it's built to so well with this symbolic fight on the staircase, yeah. you know, like as Evelyn, I, I think it, it's beautifully executed the way that that sequence really ties up all of these characters, like all of them, even the secondary ones get, you know, some sort of resolution where you know, she's fighting up the stairs and revealing these inner desires to these people, revealing these things that they've been looking for that they didn't even know it. And that really, you know, like she says, she's learning to fight like Wayman, where, you know, she isn't trying to hurt them anymore. She's just trying to help them, to be kind to them, to show them the, the things that they've been lacking. You know, I think, you know, my favorite is Rakakuni. Obviously, that's insanely good. Um, but also, you know, we we see like the security guard with a dog. We see, um, you know, the Biff Whiff's character as her, her um, you know, a little over familiar laundromat patron. She like, you know, gives him a memory of his wife to to look back on. And, you know, with um, with Gong Gong, it's like saying like really confronting their history together and saying like, how did you leave me behind? You know, how did you abandon me? I can't do that to my kid. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these these really beautiful moments building and and really crescendoing with this final confrontation in the everything bagel but even more impactfully a final conversation between evelyn and joy outside the laundromat you know where where everything that they're saying works on every level (laughs) as as evelyn sort of refuses to give up on their relationship and and it's not even that she changes, it's that she changes approaches. You know, she she lets herself be herself a little more with her daughter. And that's yeah. ultimately what yeah. saves them. No, it's funny. I I, I want to rewatch that scene because it is so interesting because you don't get – it's unexpected in that you don't get this, like, big apology that you might get in another version of this script in different hands. Yeah, um, a cheaper version, frankly. Yeah, you don't you, – I mean, you get her mom wanting – connection i do think you get an apology i think there isn't or maybe i'm wrong but you'd also get- I, I i don't think so no i think it's just sort of saying like you know what of all the places i could be this is still where i want to be yeah well and you also get her reiterating these hurtful things that's like you know what you don't call me and you are getting yeah. fat which is really like not <laughs> Not what you would expect to work <laughs> not what you would expect to work and not necessarily what you would describe as like you know, a 
like like ideal character growth, like calling your child fat Maybe again. Not. <laughs> but that's what's so great about it. And I think the other, it plays against the audience's expectations and is more true to Evelyn. And the other amazing moment that kind of like coincides with that, that plays against audience expectations is you have this buildup of the rocks of Jobu Topaki as a rock heading towards the cliff. And as an audience member, you're expecting Evelyn to, to stop her before she gets there. But instead she goes over the cliff with her, yeah. which I just thought was a really, really like beautiful. I mean, I feel my heart warming as I talk about yeah. it now, like metaphor for sometimes what it's like to be there for someone. Sometimes you can't necessarily save someone. Yeah. But you can go along with them, you know. It, it reminds me of, um, of all things, a line on the West Wing, which I still have wow. a, a complicated affection it for. Reminding but him of a line on the West Wing. <laughs> but there's there's a great little parable where it's a, a guy falls down a hole, and a priest walks by and he shouts out to him, "Father, help me! Can you help me? I fell down this hole." And the priest says a little prayer and then walks on. Then a doctor walks by and the, the guy in the hole says, Doc, help, I'm stuck in this hole. The doctor writes a prescription, drops it in the hole and keeps on walking. Mm. And then a friend of his walks by and the guy in the hole says, Joe, it's me. Help me. I can't get out. The walls are too high. And his friend jumps down in the hole with him. Mm. And the man in the hole says, what were you thinking, you idiot? Now we're both in this hole. And his friend just smiles and says, yeah, but I've been in this hole before. So I know the way out. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Wow. There's there's one more big point that I want to hit before we have our game of Mary Fuck Kill, yeah, which yeah. is actually directly related to the idea of this this idea of absurdity. Because I, I how familiar are you with the idea of like a post postmodern art movement? I feel like I'm not intellectually, but I feel like I can sense a vibe. Same. Same. I, I did some research on it for this episode. Nice. Um, I, I had an interest in it anyway. There are a lot of different conflicting ideas about what it is. A lot of people have a very nihilistic view of it where it's the the art of late stage capitalism. You know, whatever comes next, we're close to the end of it. This is the the final death throes of it. I actually disagree. I think that 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 sort of work is being is more the tail end of postmodernism than it is the beginning of something new. Um, but the, the the sort of art critics, uh, Timotheus Vermeulen and Robin van der Acker, coined the term metamodernism, which I still have objections to, but I, I'll outline some of it, uh, which is sort of related to the platonic idea of metaxi, which is um, the idea that anything that divides two things also connects them. It's sort of about oscillation between poles where metamodern work is ironic but sincere. It's, you know, it's re referencing older works while still doing something new. It's very like everything everywhere all at once, frankly. Um, I actually think that they have some severe limitations on their – from what I've read, they, they there are some limits on what they see, which – I, I would say there's actually something even bigger coming. Like, I think that the next art movement isn't going to be defined by its relationship to modernism. It's it's going to be a child of postmodernism and modernism, but it's going to be something new. Um, and I think this movie is a great example of it because it's absurd and absurdist. It's, as Quan said, sort of punk humanist. It's anti-capitalist and anti-authoritarian. It's cosmopolitan it's sophisticated it's funny it focuses on the intersection of identities it's not afraid to be sincere but that sincerity feels very tested 
by irony. Like it, it knows that concepts like love and patriotism are completely corrupted concepts under capitalism, but there's a truer love behind them. There's something real out there that can be found. Everything everywhere all at once fits in this current movement towards something bigger. You know, I think you can also see it in in other forms like painting with Titus Kafar and fiction with George Saunders and TV with Russian Doll. Really, Donald Glover is the perfect example of, you know, this, this comedian, rapper, actor, writer who is ironic but sincere and distanced but also raw and also honest but also lying and also knowing that he's doing the whole thing at the same time but knowing doesn't detract from the fact that he's still saying it. You know what I mean? I, I, sorry, it, it's, it's. <laughs> I do. I feel like I'm catching a vibe, but I also feel like I have to go do some reading, catch up, do some watching. <laughs> you already brought up, um, Bo Burnham. Like, yeah. What's, what's the song? A little bit of everything. everything oh. All of the time. Yeah. You've already brought up how, like, the feeling of being fractured that they show in like a multiverse way also really, really is a good metaphor for how fractured we might feel by the internet and the different ways, the different selves that we have across all these social media accounts that we're trying to present and like, and then like cohere into one self that like makes sense and is marketable, but is also personable and dateable. And so I don't have a lot to add when it comes to like, uh, everything you said, because I feel like it was very smart and makes sense and is like grounded <laughs> in theory. No, it's just my ranting and raving. It's it's, it's one of my bugbears, you know. It's, <laughs> it's something that I just, I, I really do think that there's something new coming. And I, I, I think it, it's coinciding with a cosmic shift in our culture and politics as well. Like, a, it's, you know, it's this vague anti-capitalist sentiment coalescing into an actual rejection of the world mm. that's dying. Well, I do think, though, there there's just an increasing grappling with nihilism. I think it's hard not to in the face of like climate change. Yeah. Like I I had my first climate change panic panic attack, which I actually think yeah. is growth. I think that's growth <laughs> because I think it was like after years of knowing about it, understanding it was bad, reading news. Yeah. It was the first time I experienced it in a really visceral way. Yeah. And I think films like um, First Reformed, I think like Bo Burnham's comedy specials that really tackle it. Yeah. I mean, in his comedy special, he talks about, I don't want to kill myself. I just maybe want to be dead for a year and then go. Yeah, like, inside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, like, Bo Burnham is also a great example of this sort of new work that's coming Definitely. where he he started his career so ironic and cynical, but in Make Happy and Inside, there's these really genuine emotions that push that it's it's not that he's retracting the irony, it's that he's using the irony to get to mm-hmm. a greater sincerity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do think, I don't know, I think you're right. There's a window blowing, there's something new coming. It's post, post, post. Yeah. It's <laughs> I I am tentatively calling it universalism, but I am open what? to it has to have a better name. <laughs> it can't be universalism. Well, I think that's not a bad name. It's too big a name. But but it's such a big feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, it, it feels like everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just m- maybe rant for one more minute. I've been thinking about climate change more, and I think when you really think about climate change, what becomes so intense is the temporality of it, mm. of kind of realizing that the future we're going to have 
is in some way was in some way baked in by the year 2000 and what we're trying to do today, you know, like just realizing the consequences that we're going to live with. It can feel multiversal in a way. Yeah. It can feel like everything all at once because like we're choosing between two timelines. We're choosing between two timelines right now. Yeah. Or three timelines or four timelines. You know, there's a lot of different outcomes that we could have. And then I think also because of the internet, we're kind of constantly inundated with information in a way that is like so overwhelming and so addictive at the same time that it can feel like everything, you know? And I just, I don't know that that's a final thought except to say that I think they really cracked a way to talk about and deal with the multiverse in a way that just feels so urgently needed Yeah, um, because of all the different ways that we're like living in different timelines in the present moment in a way that's unlike anything humans have experienced before. Absolutely. And I I love that they point towards, they don't just throw the problem at the audience, they point towards something like a solution, which is the idea of like, call it what you want, call it love, call it solidarity, call it international revolution, call it kindness. You know, it's, it's an urge to connect rather than destroy. Yes. Yeah. Now we, we we can't end on such an intellectual note no. though. We have we to have end, to end on, on our absolutely hilariously juvenile game of of Mary Fuck Mary Kill. Fuck <laughs> Who are we gonna do it with, do you think? So I love I have a pitch. Let me pitch it to you and, and you tell me what you think. There are three versions of Waymond. <laughs> I love that. I There's love it. Waymond Wong, yeah. adorable, bumbling husband. There's Alpha Waymond, sci-fi hero. And then call him Hot Waymond in the Wong Kar Wai-averse uh, with the, the suit and tie. Yeah, no, um, I love this idea. It's an incredible idea. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so I know exactly. I'm obviously going to marry original Waymond. He's adorable. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love his... He's adorable. Um, I think it's incredibly romantic to be served divorce papers as an attention grabbing mechanism. (laughs) I'm definitely going to (laughs) fuck the the Raymond in a suit. (laughs) The the Wong Kar Wai. Is that my saying it right? Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. Like in the mood for that. I I call it that just because the stylistic nods. Yeah. um, Not just because he's very handsome and hot, but also because he delivers a really beautiful monologue about you know, that I think is really important for people who maybe feel like their kindness is um, taken for naivety in the world. I feel like he was like a hero for, because I don't, I don't always think that I'm kind enough to be counted among those people, but I think he was like (laughs) a beautiful, you know, monologue about why choosing to be kind and gentle and good in this world isn't, is a survival strategy. Yeah. I think he says, uh, yeah, he says, uh, I know you think you're a fighter and I think I am too. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And, um, yeah, I, I'll kill Alpha Wayman, which I feel really bad about, but like he's been killed so many times before. I, think. I know. <laughs> it won't hurt. It won't yeah, hurt. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I was going to say the exact same thing, but I think I'm going to tweak it slightly. I, I am going to kill Alpha, Alpha Wayman because because he abandons Evelyn so easily. Like, yes, and, yeah. and is just like it, it's it's mostly a default kill because obviously he's still, you know, he's been surviving the apocalypse. I completely understand. Um, but I, I think I'm going to marry romantic Wayman, like the Wong Kar Wai Wayman. Love that. Because like. 
I don't know, something about like having been hurt before and like having this deep and abiding a passion in him. And, you know, he's so elegant and charming. And I mean, who who would have thought that in year of our Lord 2022, Ki Kwan would be a sex symbol. Um, but damn, he sells it in that scene. Yeah. Um, and then and then by default, I will fuck uh, Wayman Wong, which, you know, he's cute. He's still cute. Love that. Love that. <laughs> uh, and I love this movie and I'm so happy we got to talk about it. I, I could record, honestly, a two part episode on this. We still haven't even scratched the surface of all the things I, I love about this I feel like it deserves movie. its own podcast. I would listen to the podcast that just goes through like scene by scene and talks me through the technicalities <laughs> yeah. of it. But not today. Not for us today, but not, another but time. Not for us today. Yeah. For today, we will say goodbye and thank you for listening to Snails and Oysters, your bi-weekly, bi-coastal, bi-sexual movie podcast. If you like the show, please uh, like, subscribe, review it. However your platform lets you interact with our show, it really does help. Fucking interact. You, yeah, interact with us. Interact, bitch. Reach out and touch hands, you know? <laughs> That's the real message of this movie. Like and subscribe. Yes. <laughs> But no, and if you really, really enjoy the show, consider hitting up our Patreon. For $5 a month, you can get movie reviews and bonus episodes. Thank you to Billy Libby for the wonderful theme music and Abby Austin for our really beautiful podcast art. And both of their social media handles are in the description of the show. Follow them, like them, obsess, stalk them even. <laughs> and if you want to stalk us, our social media handles are in the description as well. And Snails and Oysters itself is at Snails Oysters on Twitter. Hit us up if you want to play Mary Fuck Kill with us, if you have an episode idea for us, uh, or if you just want to connect you know mm-hmm. if you just want to be kind to us yeah yeah but until next time i'm nat roberts and i'm ali rogers and thank you for being, being a bye ally in our fight against joku tobacco <laughs>